Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national, and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McLenahan, and in this episode, my guests and I will discuss the question, why is anti-racism still crucial to social work practice? With me for the conversation are children's services social workers Patrice Bentick and Pam Shodende, and consultant social worker and practice educator Pauline Sargent, all of whom are members of BASWA's Black and Ethnic Minority Professionals Symposium, and Pauline is the chair. Our conversation is going to explore how social workers can take an anti-racist approach to practice and we will be discussing anti-racist practice in the context of anti-black racism. To set some background, uh, we made an episode of the podcast back in May 2021 with Mitt Joyner, President of the National Association of Social Workers in the USA, and Chantelle Thomas, BASWA's anti-racism lead, in which we discussed the issue of structural and institutional racism in the UK and the USA. This was followed up in November when Mitt and Chantelle came back to explore anti-racist allyship. We discussed how individuals who are not negatively impacted by racism can support those who are affected in their efforts to dismantle the structures, cultures and attitudes that lead to discrimination and prejudice. We explored the concepts of white privilege and white supremacy, what performative allyship looks like and what genuine allyship looks like and more importantly what it costs. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I encourage you to go back and explore them as they will really help to provide the background to what we're going to speak about today. But before we get into that, I want to properly welcome my guests, Pauline, Patrice, Pam, you're so welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. Pauline, how are you doing? Fine, thanks, Andy, and I'm raring to go. Thank you for inviting me. Brilliant. Uh, Patrice, how are you doing? Hi, Andy. I'm doing very well. Very excited to be back in the hot seat with you and it's a back yes welcome back that's right this is not patrice's first time on the podcast uh patrice you were with us oh i can't even remember what it was but it was about the care review we we're talking yeah, about the care and review the, and some yeah, months ago and, um, black and ethnic minority children that's right that's right I should, have, I should have mentioned that episode in the intro please go back and listen to that one it was a great one as well and um, pam how are you doing I'm very well, thank you. Really excited to be here and looking forward to it. Great. Uh, Pam, are you in Coventry? I am, yes. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, Patrice, you and Pauline, you guys are both in London, is that right? Yeah, we are. That's right. Okay, wonderful. Well, welcome. So good to have you all here. Thank you. I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to be talking about anti-racist practice. Now, given how rife structural and institutional racism is throughout our society, I want to ask where social workers need to start in terms of embedding anti-racist practice. Rather than paying lip service, what do social workers need to do to set anti-racist practice as the cornerstone, you know, as the foundation of their approach to work? I'd like to say, Andy, that I just think it's to embed anti-racist practice. It's just to go back to our professional frameworks. So going back to the need for all social workers to work with diversity. Um, so what does that mean? You know, it's about understanding difference, um, using the values that we should have as social workers to respect those differences and to find out about differences and how the differences will interact within our practice. 
Um, so it's about, yes, I said respect. It's about dignity, dignity and worth of the human, uh, of the individual, and respecting human relationships. And if we understand all of that, which we should as social workers, I believe that's the very start of working, you know, in an anti-racist way. And Pauline, that should be there. You're talking about, you know, respect and difference. You're talking about values. Should is not always must. Is that not the case? You know, definitely. Thanks for correcting me because we should, but we must. I definitely we wasn't must. correcting you. So yeah. I wasn't correcting you. I mean, what I meant was um, there is a gap for some social workers, I'm, I'm presuming. I'm presuming too. There is a gap. Okay. But I think you're right though, Andy. It is a must. Um, it's, it's within our frameworks that we must um, understand diversity. It's part, it's part of our PCS regardless of where we work as social workers, whatever setting, it's part of the professional capability um, framework or the standards that we should be following and that governs our practice. So it is a must and you're absolutely right. I suppose I said should because there are gaps. We know this. and So that's probably why I, I was using should, but I'd agree it should, it is a must. I think I'd like to just add um, to what you're saying, Pauline, and highlight that Reflection is a key part of our roles as social worker, as social workers, and also as human beings, it's checking ourselves, looking at ourselves, bringing remember to bring our whole self into the work, and it's about committing to the development of our skill set, de- development of our reflection, and ensuring that we are keeping up to date with all of our work, and. Anti-oppressive practice and anti-discriminatory practice underpin some of that. Okay, so anti-racism has just come out of that as a specific topic. Like we would think about um, any of the isms and any of our social races and challenging those. So I think it's a commitment to doing that work outside of working hours, commitment to doing it when we're waking up and brushing our teeth, commitment to each family and each individual that we're with. It doesn't always have to be so complicated, you know. It just needs to take a moment, like you would to think about any other thing that you would in relation to your children, such as neglect, such as domestic abuse, such as um, homophobic uh, behaviours that we would be against, such as anti-Semitism. And I highlight those because it's just a comparison that all of these things are equally as important. It's very uh, interesting, Pauline and uh, Patrish, sort of your views on that. And I totally agree with you. But I think as well, as social workers, we work with a really diverse uh, people within our, you know, within our workloads, my caseload, you know, I've worked with different people. And I think it's actually really dangerous for social workers not to have the basic understanding of the importance of anti-racism, because that can have an adverse effect on the people that we work with. So obviously a lack of understanding, you know, it is it, is at this time, more than anything else, all the research, all the all the knowledge that we now have about the importance of anti-racism. And not just in social work, but obviously as social workers, we're really placed in a really unique position within society to start to make those changes because it starts with us, isn't it? It starts with our values because we've all come into this job, not because, you know, I didn't come into this job because of the, the salary. And I don't think that's the same for any, any of us because I don't think we get paid enough for what we do. Um, however, 
when we have the basic understanding and just again, just reiterating what Patricia just said about critical reflection as a social worker, don't go into any, you know, any situation with assumptions about you think, you know, ask questions when necessary. If you're not sure about anything, just just ask, you know, it's it's the simple things, the basic things that we start developing our understanding about racism. And, you know, the more that we take responsibility for our own actions and inactions, the more that we can start to develop our practice within anti-racism. Thank you, Pam. I just want to share a little quote with you. I'm going to read the quote out before I tell you who it is, but it's to do with what um, Pauline was talking about, respect for difference. So the quote, and this is going to be slightly um, abridged, all conflict is about difference, whether the difference is race, religion or nationality. Difference is not a threat. Difference is natural. Difference is is of the essence of humanity. Difference is an accident of birth and should therefore never be the source of hatred or conflict. The answer to difference is to respect it. Therein lies a most fundamental principle of peace, respect for diversity. That was a quote from John Hume um, when he was uh, receiving his Nobel Peace Prize. Um, John Hume was uh, leader of the SDLP. He was fundamental to bringing peace to Northern Ireland. Um, So he was talking primarily in, in, in the context of peace and re- reconciliation and anti-sectarianism, but it, you know, that reads over to anti-racism as well. Respect for dis- diversity, difference is the essence of humanity. You know, that is, to be human is mm. to be different. Um, yes. Exactly. And I would say, if I can add, Andy, um, from that quote, really lovely quote, that diff- I wouldn't say, I wouldn't agree that difference is an accident at birth. I think it was planned. Because, as you say, it is the essence of humanity. What would we be without it, really? Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, um, Pauline. Um, I want to move on. I want to talk about now working with um, uh, children. Uh, so we're going to talk about different aspects of social work and anti-racist practice. But if we look at anti-racist practice in relation to um, children's services, um, so looking at the from this perspective of working with black children and young people, what does a social worker need to take into consideration to ensure that they're challenging inequality and promoting anti-racist practice? And Pam and Patrice, you guys are children's services social workers, so I'm going to put this one to you. Um, I think it really starts with um, us challenging our unconscious or conscious biases, because if we, if you go into a situation, for example, that you have a lot of preconceived ideas about that situation, you're not going to be open-minded to be able to deal with it in the best way um, that it needs to be dealt with. And we do come across a lot of situations within um, children's services where on the face of it, where you get a referral come through, you've already got to the end of that referral. You've already had an outcome without even necessarily going out to the family to really understand those issues. And then if you go into that situation with those preconceived ideas, you're not going to be open-minded to be able to support that family in the best way possible. So I think to start with, I think the most important thing is being open-minded, really, uh, as a social worker, is understanding that you don't know everything. There is always going to be... um, especially working with black families, there are going to be uh, cultural diverse um, instances where if you lack the knowledge and understanding, you need to be going in there and asking questions about things that you're unsure about rather than sort of making those assumptions that, you know, this is it, for example. Um, I think one that would be, that would sort of come to mind would be things around maybe um, witchcraft, because I know that's something that's quite um, a big issue within Black families. So, you know, as a social worker, your 
obviously safeguarding is the most important thing when you're going into that situation. But yes, as your first reaction is to safeguard that child, it's also understanding why the family have those thoughts. Why do they have those processes? Why have they taken this, this, you know, it's because that way, when you then have that understanding, then it's easy for you to be able to educate the family on how best not to go about taking those actions. But then kind of just writing off the family, you know, and saying that, you know, this is not, this is not how best to do it. And then you don't get the best outcome for the family in general. So can, can we just explore that a bit more, Pam, when you're talking about witchcraft, is this the sort of assumption that if a child has perhaps um, a disability or something that that is the result of witchcraft? Yeah, so um, Prosper Tedham has written um, a really good book on this. So it's probably worth um, reading that. I don't have the title to hand, but I know that she has written a book on on this. If you send me it, I'll put it in the show notes so people can access that. Yeah, yeah. well, it's really about um, safeguarding uh, children who were within the African, especially African, Black African families, there is sort of this notion that if a child has certain disabilities or behavioural issues, that the child has uh, got sort of witchcraft possession within them. Um, but this is obviously, a, it's it's about our social workers going into that, into that situation from a non-judgmental point of view. It's really, first, as I said, the first thing you should be thinking about is safeguarding that child, definitely. It's obviously taking that child out of that situation. But also being able to educate the family about, you know, taking a different approach and having a better outcome uh, for, for the family as a whole, because definitely sort of writing off that child, writing off that family is not always going to be the best outcome to take. And obviously having those ideas that, you know, this is, this child cannot return back to the family is always not necessarily the best way to go about it. So the point I'm trying to make really is that our social workers, having a really good understanding of anti-racist practice is taking the first step of being non-judgmental, non, you know, not having preconceived ideas about situations, but rather being open-minded and really understanding how things impact families and how we can work together with them to get the best outcome for the family as a whole. I just want to follow up on that. I mean, we've talked about in previous episodes, we've talked about structural racism, institutional racism. Social work is not immune to those, those factors. As a black woman practicing social work, do you feel that you have ever been influenced by those factors in terms of your own views on situations? That's a really good question, um, because in, the reality is, even though I am black, I do have preconceived ideas because obviously I'm not immune to that myself, even as a, as a black person. So this is actually something that impacts on everybody. But I, I think what makes me a little bit different is that because I would have experienced some of these issues myself as a black woman, as a black African woman. And so I would, it would be, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say it would be easier, but it comes as a natural thing for me to be able to sort of question myself about situations when I'm going into them, rather than kind of just making assumptions, if that makes sense. So, Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's, what, that's the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, we are all human beings and, you know, we, we society kind of just allows us to have these build up on these um, things that not necessarily are true, but obviously the media would uh, perpetrate some of these um, ideas and ideologies. And obviously we kind of just, you know, feed into that. But it's really about questioning ourselves when we're going into those situations to make sure that it's actually coming from a non-judgmental point of view. And social workers are not immune to that at all. It's something that actually we need to be doing on a regular basis. And I think that's the importance of critical reflection. 
Patrice, uh, one of the issues that we've talked about a number of times in the podcast previously is the issue of adultification. Um, to what extent do you find adultification of black young people is an issue in social work practice? Um, and in what context do you see that manifest? Um, I think it's huge and it links heavily into what Pam has touched on in terms of unconscious bias and subconscious bias. There is an expectation of black children and families, or black people as a whole, but of course when working with children and families for them to present a particular way or we give uh, different explanations for their actions or have a different level of acceptance for their actions or things that they are not doing. Um, For example, if a young black girl is groomed um, and sexually exploited, there may be more acceptance around why she's got into that situation and blaming her um, for being in the situation and experiencing the sexual abuse or physical abuse. Um, things that I've heard people say is like, oh, um, she's very promiscuous, yeah? And uh, put uh, highlighting the young person instead of actually saying, no, this is an older person, this is an adult that has preyed on a young girl. And um, in those discussions the child's innocence is removed um, and then it impacts whether we push for um, her to be treated equally to her peers. We take away any pain or humiliation that that young person may experience or that child may experience. And then long-term, social workers could potentially... um, not identify the right services for this young person to ensure that they are getting therapeutic support, to ensure that um, there's a police investigation is pushed for and some criminal action is taken. Um, And that starts uh, the journey for that young person into adulthood around what does healthy relationships look like? What does safety safety look like in my intimate relationships, in my relationships with my family, with my friends? Um, just is is horrible. Absolutely, thanks, Patrice. In terms of engaging with families and and uh, children and families, are there any other issues that stand out? We've talked about adultification. Uh, Pam mentioned witchcraft. Anything around like discipline, punishment, those sorts of issues? Yeah, I think within the family home and culturally, I'm I'm Caribbean, and I know that um, and it, within family households as well. There's this, there's huge discussions around physical chastisement and what that looks like um, and how to discipline children. And there's also this notion of kicking your children out really early. Um, we, we see a lot of, of black families make decisions around, you know, that if they want to act like an adult, let them go in the street and be an adult. That is a typical thing that you might hear. Um, and you know, historically, we know where that comes from. <laughs> Huge connections to slavery and uh, colonialism. Um, but in those conversations and those actions, we see families treating their children like adults. Mm-hmm. Also, we think about the caring roles that some of our children may have to take up for their parents, um, how independent they have to be if we're thinking about poverty and we're thinking about cost of living crisis and we think about what our families have to do to be able to put food on the table 
what our families have to do to be able to buy school shoes and uniform. And that's where you see more children, black um, black children, acting like adults, having to do um, adult tasks. And again, their innocence and their childhood is taken away. Um, I'd like to just add that in children's services, we use something called the Common Assessment Framework Triangle. Um, uh, so a lot of a lot of um, social workers who have been uh, qualified for a long time may forget that this exists because it's just so standard. But I can give you a link for you to put it in the the chat. Um, but the Common Assessment Framework Triangle looks at the needs of the child. Yeah, the the parent. Uh, capacity and how that impacts the child and then environmental factors and how that Im- impacts the child and just going back to what Pam said about unconscious bias we don't know that we are biased sometimes of course it comes from a place that you know is automatic because of systemic uh, racism and systematic racism however if we're using tools like that and we just simply ask the question how does this imp- impact this child that's black or how does being black impact this family in these different sections? You can just start to explore things differently. So just linking it from just um, on the back of what you said, Patricia, around fiscal chastisement. I think actually it's it's a it's a very common issue within sort of black families, but there is a reason for it, and I think it's really important that as social workers we understand because that's what that's how we're not only there to sort of. Um, Safeguarding, yes, is a big part of what we do, but it's also around when we understand, then we have a better outcome. And I think for me, it's the outcome for the families. And when we do our assessments, we need to be able to evidence how we are, how these issues, how we've understood these issues and how we've had the best outcome for the family. And not necessarily, you know, um, getting children into care, because obviously, as we know, that's not always the best outcome for a child. But I think the more that we understand where these come from and why black families sort of take these approaches with their children, then it's easier for us to be able to work with those families to to educate and understand, you know, how they can take a different approach for their children. And I think Patricia makes a really good point around slavery and colonialism, because that's how, that's how we, that's how black people, that's, how we understand things you know this is how this is our experience and unfortunately it's hard to listen to it's hard to hear but actually when we educate ourselves then it, it, it people have a better understanding about why we are the way that we are um and I grew up in a black family black African family and it was normal it was a normal thing for me to be you know, for my parents to take physical chastisement as a form of punishment, I didn't see at the time as a bad thing. I didn't think that it was bad because obviously I grew up in Nigeria and that's that was a norm. But obviously now coming here and obviously ha- living in a different society, having a better understanding, I'm taking a different approach with my children, but not everyone's got that luxury. So it's it's not... I don't think that parents set out to want to hurt their children. I don't think that anyone, you know, a black a black uh, mom and dad physically chastise their children just for the sake of it. But I feel that 
the more that we educate ourselves, the more that we understand these issues coming from a you know cultural competence is a whole different subject altogether. But again, that underpins what we do, isn't it? Is that we have that cultural competency when we're doing our assessments. And it's quite unfortunate actually that those areas of social work as an, aren't actually mentioned in the, in the framework. But I think it's really important that we have those at the back of our minds when we're doing our assessments. And that is going to be the difference between a child who remains in the family home. Absolutely, 100%. Compared to a child who's going to be removed and put into the care system. And that is why we have a high number of Black children in the care system versus how many Black children actually live within those areas. For example, in my local authority where I am at the moment, Black children are four times four times for every one white child there are four black children in care patrice pam thank you so much it's really really helpful to get those insights in relation to um anti-racist promoting anti-racist practice in terms of children's services social work but i mentioned at the start that we also wanted to talk about uh, mental health social work and that's an area that pauline is expert in pauline i'm just going to put some figures to you here um i've seen stats from the office of notion Sorry, the, the Office of Notional Statistics, I'll be wrong. The Office of National Statistics, um, which indicate that white people are more likely than black people to self-report uh, a mental illness, quite significantly uh, more likely to report um, a mental illness. But I've seen other figures, uh, NHS figures, um, and these highlighted that black men are more likely to experience higher rates of psychotic disorders than men of any other ethnic group. Do we know why rates of psychotic disorders uh, might be higher among black men? Okay, so as somebody who has, um, and thanks for the question, Andy, somebody who's been working in mental health services for many years, um, amongst ourselves as workers and particularly as black workers, we all also used to always ask that question. Why are so many black men diagnosed with, you know, given the same diagnosis, psychosis? Um, so you have to think about what is psychosis? Um, you know, and I'm just going to share it's uh, some of the symptoms of psychosis. You know, it's like disorganized speech, incoherent speech, like a, a confused way of thinking, um, strange behavior, possibly dangerous behavior, um, unusual movements, a slowing down a loss of interest in things that, you know, you're used to be interested in, a kind of isolative lifestyle, hallucinations, be it visual, um, what they call olfactory, which is smelling things that other people can't smell, um, or hearing things, auditory, a confused and disorganized way of thinking and having delusions, which is living a life talking about things that are absolutely real to you, but to, you know, anybody else, they're not. So these are some of the symptoms of psychosis. And for, for that diagnosis to be given to so many black men, you know, as I've said, I've worked in mental health services for so long. And sometimes after 10 years, you as the practitioner, you're saying, but yes, you know, you are seeing things differently. So as a black amp, then I'm seeing things differently to the very consultant who's given that diagnosis. 
and very often asking the question, why that diagnosis? And sometimes the diagnosis being given very quickly, when it, whereby for a lot of other um, mental illnesses, it takes years um, to be given a diagnosis. So again, the question, why is that diagnosis given so quickly to black men um, predominantly? So it's a very difficult question to ask, but it's, it's out there. Um, and for me, it's, it's about a lack of understanding sometimes on the part of the person who's making that diagnosis. So seeing a certain symptom and not being able to um, look a bit deeper or get a bit, you know, a better understanding of the causation of how that person might be acting. Um, do, you, do you perceive a difference then in terms of how medical practitioners are assessing cases compared to yourself as a social work practitioner? Yes, definitely. Um, the 1989 Mental Health Act, that's why um, they, it introduced um, social workers as then we were approved social workers because they introduced social work into the mix of Mental Health Act assessments. So the formal assessments that are undertaken to determine whether or not a person is too unwell to remain in the community and should be detained in hospital. So that act actually introduced social workers into the mix. And so social workers as AMP, we actually have the final say in those assessments because we are very often coming from a different perspective. Um, yeah, and it's about the getting to know, despite somebody's um, presentation, but it's still a case of having to get to know the person behind um, the presentation, behind whatever whatever label they've been given. And I'm talking about label meaning a diagnosis. And Pauline, I just want to lead that point on a little bit further. Patrice mentioned earlier on about black uh, children and young people being four times more likely than white uh, children and young people to be taken into care in her local authority area. Um, but government figures also indicate that black uh, adults are four times more likely to be detained under the Mental Health Act than white adults. Um, now, my perception would be that there is an element of structural racism there, um, that maybe a quicker uh, response to detain people, maybe a quicker response to take an action which is more severe. Would my assumption be correct there? Well, it is again, you know, people go into hospital or are detained into hospital under different circumstances. So. A lot of people are detained. They are taken off the street, out of the community via what, what is known as a 136 section. Um, and this is done by the police. So it's again, how much do they, you know, and, you know, they, they can use that section because they see somebody acting in a bizarre way. Um, so they're then taken off the streets. And that's the start of a section in process, really, because, um, you know, they're brought into hospital, then they are seen by um, doctors and the specialists are doctors and the AMP. So detention in hospital, it should be like a, a, a three-way process. So there should be two doctors and a social worker, an AMP. But again, the doctors are coming from a medical perspective. So it's, a lot of it is down, I would say, to the social worker, the AMP, and how they conduct that formal mental health act assessment. So again, all the things we said before about what social workers should be all about when we are intervening in people's lives, you know, being unwell 
and and having to see somebody who's unwell as a social worker should not deviate from the fact that we should still be treating that person with that respect, giving that person the dignity and worth and all those things that we should um, be doing if we value the individual who's in front of us. And that's why we as social workers make, you know, the 2007 Mental Health Amendment, Mental Health Act Amendment, introduced other disciplines, so other professionals to become, you know, ants. And to date, you know, the numbers of ants who are non-social workers is very low still. I haven't got the exact numbers, but it's still very low. So for me, you know, social workers are doing, there to do a unique um, job then. It's a new, unique responsibility when you are an amp and you are determining alongside doctors and the medical profession, but you're there to determine whether somebody's too unwell, um, having considered all the circumstances as the law says, we are there to consider whether somebody is too unwell to remain um, in the community and they need to be detained because that's where the right and most suitable treatment will be for them. Thank you, Pauline. Thanks. Patricia, you were trying to come in? Yeah, I just want to link it, link um, the black experience to what Pauline has spoken so uh, strongly about in terms of respect, dignity, and seeing people as humans, seeing the individual working with as humans. The black experience is often that we are not seen as humans. And this transcends through multiple experiences. So linking in with the adultification that I spoke about earlier, but if we look at um, the history, black people were experimented on. Um, it was spoken that uh, black people did not feel pain, right? And this um, underpins a lot of the black experience. For example, we know that child death in black women is extremely high. It's four times the amount of uh, in for, for white women, yeah? If we're looking at the health system, healthcare system as a whole, black people's experience of feeling pain, feeling trauma, whether it's acute pain at the time, or whether it's the impact of an experience um, on the person is not taken as strongly or believable as if um, it's happening to a white person. And we can see that in um, George Floyd's murder, for example. He was in acute pain. He wasn't seen as a human in that moment. And I talk about George Floyd because nationally we all know who that is, but we know it's been ha it happens on a weekly basis. And mental health... Uh, child protection, um, these things are no different. So for black men and black young boys, we can link adultification strongly here in into mental health because in terms of a young black boys experiencing gang violence, experiencing peer-on-peer -peer abuse, they are often not seen as children. They suffer with extreme mental health from a young age, whether it's drug-induced, which is something that a lot of people want to talk about. Oh, it's cannabis, it's drug abuse. No, this young person is ex experiencing trauma, whether it's within the home, whether it's from peer and peer abuse on the street, whether it's from poverty, lack of provisions, lack of access to services. And this is something that is seen across the board. So then these young people become adults and culturally there's something about not accepting mental health as something, uh, for what it is yeah 
But then again, the services that wrap around these families are not taking their experiences seriously. And so we just have so many Black people of multiple ages, uh, multiple services, just not getting what they need. Um, but if a, a white person was to come forward and say, actually, this is my experience, I'm feeling this pain, they are believed. And this happens in the workplace also when you have Black social workers who are experiencing trauma because of work, when they are overwhelmed, overworked, underpaid, their experience is not seen as significant as their white white counterparts. Now, Patrice, I was going to say there's like there's a there's a host of things I want to pick up on in, in that last uh, sort of couple of minutes. So, uh, just to, just to kind of to make sure we get through everything, the first question I want to ask is around uh, perceptions of mental health. Now, we as a society more widely, I think we are getting better at talking about mental health. Slowly getting better, not fast enough. But Pauline, just coming back to you, this is your area of expertise obviously it, it impacts in terms of children's services as well so welcome comments from patrice and pam but in terms of your experience as a mental health professional do you perceive differences in terms of how mental health is discussed um when you're looking at um, black communities compared to maybe other communities so how is this discussed within black communities yes, yes well i think patrice patrice kind of touched on it in that Mental health is often seen as a taboo. Um, it's often, there's all, often a stigma that follows it, you know, follows you around. If you've been diagnosed with something or you've been deemed to, to have mental ill health, it's a no, no. I just think for a lot of people, things are changing. As you said, Andy, things are changing and mental illness is almost being what's, I don't want to say glamorized because that sounds funny. That doesn't sound right. But it's it's okay to talk about mental illness. It's not as it was before. Um, we never we never talk about it. Um, we avoid talking about it and just hope it's going to go away because that that's never the case. It never goes away. Um, I'm just also thinking a lot of the times, as Patrice um, said, it starts from a young age and it's about the act, the mental health that recognizes that it, we we have to be providing the right treatment. You know, one person's experience of mental illness, even with the same diagnosis, it's going to be different. So we have to find the right treatment for the for um the person concerned. And sometimes when it starts in in a younger age, young people are not getting the right treatment. They transition into adult services they're still not getting the right treatment. For a lot of people, black people in, in um, mental who, who um, are getting mental health services, the, the sole treatment is medication. And then all the adverse effects that come from that. So people won't take that as treatment. You know, I've always advocated for tailor-made therapy. You know, a lot of my um, colleagues will go go on, step into therapy at a later date. But I always like to know that, you know, the, the treatment that is there for people are tailor-made. And for a lot of Black people who find themselves in mental health services, there's no suitable treatment. Um, so that's another issue. Can I just, just one point here, and please, please correct me if I've got this wrong. I'm just coming back to what Pam was saying earlier on about, you know, issues around witchcraft. I mean... 
uh, my experiences um, of kind of having a religious background in Northern Ireland is that often in sort of certain denominations, Pentecostalism, for example, there have been quite negative attitudes towards mental health or maybe misunderstandings of mental health. That Mental health is not something that you necessarily need to see a doctor about. It's something you need to get sorted out at a spiritual level. Mm-hmm. Now, the, quite, the reason I'm kind of hesitant to ask this question is because I might have got this entirely wrong, but my perception that there may well be um, higher levels of religiosity amongst um, black British people um, does religion play into it? Now, just stop me from right now if I've got this wrong and set me straight. You see, it's for me then, because I can only speak for myself as a mental health practitioner. If you as a practitioner understand, um, because, you know, I work closely with psychiatrists and so forth. So you get to understand what an illness actually looks like and sound funny as it may, you can actually sometimes feel, you know, maybe it's because you're, you're, you're empathizing with them. So you begin to feel what they're feeling. So you begin, you can begin to tell what is real mental illness and what isn't quite. So, and I think, you know, there's lots being said about spirituality and, and mental illness. So is it about somebody experience, experiencing something on a higher realm? It's hard to, it's hard to describe. It's hard to, I don't know. I'm still reading into it myself. There might be something in it. But again, I'm coming back to if it's something that's almost tangible, can be seen, and they, um, those who know about the treatment, they know there's suitable treatment there and they can see improvements, then I would say, yes, it was a, or because there's organic mental illness, you know, so it's something that's bodily, you're born with. They say schizophrenia comes out early 20s. That's kind of a typical time it comes about. Or it could be mental distress that then triggers behavior or presentations that look like a a mental illness, but it's coming from somewhere else. Uh, it's yes. very difficult to to describe. Yes. Oh, what know? I was kind of getting that point was more: are people um, not? You know, we were talking about the issue of taboo and mental health and taboo. Are people unwilling to seek appropriate treatments because of something they're being told in a in a religious context? That's that's more what I was getting at. Certainly, it's hard for me to answer that because I'm not literally um, years in mental health services, but haven't been for about seven years now, so I couldn't say up to date what's happening but yes there has been that in the past where yeah people avoid or they're in denial and they want to deal with mental illness distress themselves they do not want to get caught up in services again that could be around mistrust of services or it could be around having been there before and not having had a very good experience so they don't want to go there again again it could be about the stereotyping, you know, around people who have been in mental health services and so forth. There's so many things that would stop somebody wanting to go into mental health services. So there's a reluctance from the black community to engage in medication or uh, health professional support, um, which is linked to historical studies, right? So there have been historical studies um, government projects that were secret and have come out and there's books about there's books about it where black people have been tested on 
right? And there's this um, underlining, um, underlining fear that the medication that's being taken isn't healthy, isn't good for us, is um, there's like a ulterior motive almost. Because, for example, the syphilis trials, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but we can get some information. But the syphilis trials, in short, were a group of black men who were in prison and they were given syphilis without them knowing um, and was huge when it came out. Um, there's Tuscany trials, there's, there's some others, but... Um, from conversations that were had, especially around COVID and vaccine hesitancy, huge in the black community because there was this thing that was out that was killing black people. And then, you know, the vaccine, is it going to kill them some more? There's always this fear underlying that is like, "Mm, can we take this? Oh, it's rubbish. Are, Are there natural ways of, curing this that aren't linked to religion but just linked to oh back home in Africa and the Caribbean we have healthy food we have sun we have sea we have fresh air we have space we have community yeah which all of these things combined can heal you can make you better although we know there's something here that needs something else like antidepressants or antipsychotic substances to help get through um, and then you do have this huge link to witchcraft that Pam could probably talk to talk more on. But you know, in the African communities back home, depending on which part of Africa, there's this link to oh, something's wrong with you. You must have an evil spirit in your body. The way to cure this, or if you're gay, you must have an evil spirit in your body. The way to cure this is if we use witchcraft, whatever that looks like. And that is linked to a time where actually, historically, if you do your research, witchcraft isn't negative. It was used to heal. You use herbs, you use positive affirmations, like what we would say now is positive affirmations and meditation. It's just a different word. So at a time in history, there was some positive coming out of this I was very conscious of the question that when I was asking about religion and mental health, like it's something which is not, it's certainly not um, exclusive to, to, to black communities, but it was just, it was just, it was about the kind of, um, it was my perception and what I wanted to test was kind of like, you know, levels of religiosity. Well, I'm just start here because this is actually a a lived or living experience. I'm still trying to work out the difference between lived and living. (laughs) But actually, because I I grew up um, in the church So this is something that obviously I've witnessed firsthand. So I'm not even talking now as a social worker. I'm talking about something that I've personally um, experienced myself and seen uh, within Black African communities. But I think specifically looking at it within the context um, of cultural competence uh, within uh, social work practice and how we do our assessments, there is a real mistrust for, for systems. There is a real mistrust for services within the Black community. And again, it's back to what Patricia and uh, Pauline have 
already touched on, so I'm not going to go a lot into detail. But the services that are usually offered are very Eurocentric and don't necessarily fit into the needs of families that we work with. And therefore, so you can imagine offering um, a black family or somebody who's got mental health issues and you're telling them that you want them to take medication. That's just necessary. They don't understand that because obviously, as I said, there is a real mistrust. What is this? Even taking something as, I mean, my mom is very, very, very religious. Um, she would rather pray a headache away rather than taking paracetamol. But obviously it's, you know, that's my mom and I understand that. But, you know, if you're saying that within um, a very Eurocentric setting, they're looking at you a bit weird, like, you know, why is paracetamol? But, you know, it's, as I said, lack of understanding, because obviously when we understand these issues, then we it's mm. easier for us to have those, open up those conversations and really get within those. And I think that's what that's what's lacking is that we don't yeah. have the time to really go and really understand within, you know, what's going on within these communities and yeah. to be able to actually mm. provide the right support for families. And I think that's a real um, letdown at the moment. Yeah, as you said, always taking that Eurocentric approach and not allowing, you know, ourselves then as social workers to think, well, let me hear from the other person. Let me see where they're coming from because their approach or their worldviews or, you know, their understandings around certain illnesses or certain situations might be different to ours. So we can't just take that Eurocentric approach and think it's always going to be the right one. Now, thank you so much. Um, what I want to do, I want to come back way near the start of the conversation Pam had mentioned. Um, I think you used the term unconscious bias. Um, unconscious bias, internalised bias. Can I just correct that? So there is unconscious bias, and I think we have gone a lot with that. But there, for me, I'm starting to feel that some of this is actually quite conscious as well. Okay, okay. So I think, okay. yeah, so it, it's it's a bit of both, actually. There is the genuine unconscious bias, but I think it's gotten to the point now that people have to accept that is, some of that is actually conscious Okay, okay, well. thank you. I'm always happy to be corrected. So let's just, I'm just going to ask a question about bias then, uh, and people can differentiate as they want in their answers. But... The issue of bias then, uh, what bias do you see? Give us a couple of examples of bias you see among um, white colleagues in terms of uh, attitudes towards the black community and social work practice. One of the ones that I, I've found quite interesting um, working within children's services is the approach that's taken uh, within sort of um, black children in schools. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Um, for example, black children are more likely to be excluded from school than white children so the approach would be quite different and even when we get those referrals as social workers we are supposed to be advocating for for, for those children but you find that some of them because some of these issues are not really understood so you go into the school and the school's obviously presented this picture of a child who's destructive picture of this child who just wouldn't you know fit within the norm of what school rules are. And rather than actually trying to unpick what that actually means, we are sort of fitting into that and kind of going with what school have presented and actually having a more, should I say, traumatic outcome for the child rather than actually supporting that child. Um, and going back, linking that again to mental health, uh, you will find that a lot of children who actually struggle with their mental health, black children actually have worse outcomes than white children because there are, as I said, the services don't necessarily fit in with the needs of the of of the 
because obviously we have to think about it more from a when it's a child, you have to think about it more from a family perspective, obviously how that family fits into that to support the child. And I think that's something that's really lacking that we need to be very mindful of. Um, so uh, that, that's some sorry, that's something that has sort of been lingering. And I really wanted to talk about that as social workers. We are advocate for families and we should be having that mindset to understand issues rather than making those conscious and unconscious biases. Thank you, Pam. Now, in terms of bias, unconscious or deliberate, something that I know is a big issue um, for black social workers is fitness to practice and the fact that black social workers are more likely to face fitness to practice procedures. Can someone talk about that? Like, why is that happening? I, it's a really heavy question. Mm. It's a very emotive mm. question. And it's, it's emotive because in... In most areas, most all areas of life, black people are the minority but overrepresented. Whenever it's something negative, and this is just another area of negativity, and it's something again about the black experience not being heard authentically for what it is. Um, if a white colleague is going through a personal struggle or an illness or something um, that could be impacting their work, their experience is seen as authentic and this is a challenge. How do we support this person to get through what it is? Um, how do we support this person with their workload, for example? If it's a black uh, social worker, it could be the the conversation could be more around okay well this person is underperforming this person isn't achieving what they're meant to achieve um oh this person this this white social worker has made a mistake for a black social worker it could be oh my gosh this is completely grave this goes against our ethics and values as social workers let's report this to social work england without having a conversation or offering support, or trying to even understand where that person is. Um, it could be procedures like um, absence review meetings and um, conversations that are meant to be held about performance are often held with a black social worker, no uh, support for that social worker, and no one of colour in the room um, to, to be there to advocate, yeah? putting that person as a, at a disadvantage um, and then, you know, the repercussions and consequences end up being huge. And often pa- any panel for any, for any reason, whether it's a job, whether it's Social Work England and Fitness of Practice, they're not equal panels. Most of the, of the time they're solely white panels. So there's no one there that's systemic, thinking enough around what does that person need what's that person's experience and with and with trauma being experienced over and over again yeah with um generational Mm -hmm. trauma yeah we need to talk a bit about that not hugely but just touch on the fact that we still have trauma from our ancestors that is unresolved because of what we have been through as black people and you're consistently going mm-hmm. through microaggressions five times a day, then you present. Do you at, think that's recognized? No, Do you think no, that's it, it's not. No. And then no. we present at these panels 
How can we talk for ourselves? I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted before I leave my house in the morning. I haven't dealt with yesterday yet or last year or five years ago or 500 years ago. I must now deal with this that you're presenting today. Of course, I'm going to get struck off. I can't even I can't even advocate for myself. And there's no one here to advocate. And there's no one here to advocate for me. It's kind of like a, is it self-fulfilling prophecy? Because once you get on that treadmill of fitness to practice, and I agree totally with what Patrice has just said, you know, for me, when I've seen it happening, it's the speed at which it happens sometimes and the lack of other things that should have been happening before it comes to that stage, you know, the lack of those things happening. And yes, the trauma of it all, um, of course, is going to impact on somebody's performance from there on in. Um, you know, I've known workers to have to wait for months, even years, especially where, when we trans, there was a transition between H. HSPC and and um, Social Work England. So people were waiting for many months to even, for things to even get started. So you can imagine the impact on them um, on having to wait that long. Um, it is about that bias, you know. So some of the, these things are brought um, are coming from a vexatious kind of nature, wanting to to harm um, the black mm-hmm. worker or individual. And knowing that there's a process that has to be gone through and and the impact that that process will have on the person concerned, you know, and all, and it's coming from a vexatious um, nature of complaint. And, and Pauline, in, in relation to in, the intergenerational trauma issue that Patrice was talking about, I mean, that is undeniably real. That is something which I think, you know, for um, uh, black British people, you know, you trace it back. I, I know from a context uh, in Northern Ireland, intergenerational trauma through the Troubles is something which has been seen second and third generation now. Yeah. Uh, and that is very real. All I would say is, um, and this is no this is no excuse, but to have grown up in a context in which there is no cause for intergenerational trauma, then there will be no understanding of it. So it's another area mm-hmm. where people need to be open to listen and understand yes, and take definitely. on that um yeah, take on that knowledge and act upon it. Completely agree. I was just going to say as well that something else that for me quite passionately I speak about is the student experience because that's where we start, isn't it? When you start your your, your learning journey as a social worker, um, as a student, um, obviously universities as well take the same approach as employers. So you can imagine that trauma already starts as a student. Um and then obviously you you get to that point where you feel very, you feel silenced, your voice is taken. So then you go into practice and you're not able to ask for support because as a student, you see how universities are very supportive of white students. Mm. You know, if I'm not able to submit an assignment, I feel very comfortable or very confident that I will get an extension or because I've had uh, family mm. issues. But if a black Student. And I'm, I'm saying this from experience. If a black student was to ask for the same support, that support system is not necessarily available. Um, and that is that is a fact. Um, and I, I say that because when then you become um, a qualified social worker, you already have that behind your, the back of your head that you have to work 10 times harder to be seen and to be recognized as doing the same level of work as your white counterparts. And then it's very hard to be able to ask for help and support because you just feel that no one's going to listen and then you're taking on. And then obviously when you're readily available, taking on work, 
as a manager, naturally, I'm going to direct to you, aren't I? Asking you, oh, can I, can you do this without even realizing if I'm able to do it or not? And I feel really scared to say no, because if I say no, then I'm afraid that, you know, that would then have repercussions for me. So, you know, and so it's, it's, it, these issues are the trauma that black social workers are having to deal with on a, on a, on a regular basis. So I, I think that generally, the, the onus is always back on us to be able to address these issues. And I think that's that's the point I really wanted to make for this podcast is that it's not just for us. It's actually for everybody to have an understanding of what anti-racist practice is. It's about the action because the inaction is actually taking, it's having um, worse repercussions for, 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 the, for the for social work in general. And I'm not just saying that just for, for black social workers. Yes, we're experiencing it, but for what social work actually stands for at the moment, it's actually quite disappointing that more isn't being done to promote anti-racist social work within, um, within practice at the moment. Um, if if anyone's listening and they want to get involved in Basu's Black and Minor, Ethnic Minority Professional Symposium, how do they do that? Well, how do they do? Well, go <laughs> onto the Basu <laughs> website, um, and I'm sure we've got a link there. Um, if we, yes, I will put please. a link in the show notes yes, as well. Please. Don't worry, um, I will take that out. Yes, but we're welcome to. We invite anybody to contact us. We are a new group. I think we're two years old now or coming up to two years. Not that new anymore. Yeah, that's right. Two years (laughs) coming up to two years, but we're there. Um, I was going to say something just following on from what Pam said, because for me, you know, I've been a social worker for, as I said before, 20 odd years. And it surprises me that I'm having to go back to the literature, that new literature and old on oppression, so anti-oppressive social work practice, because it does tie in with anti-racist social work practice. Um, And, you know, I'm reading something at the moment why I no longer um, talk about race to white people. Talk to white people, yes. 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 Um, And I thought, you know, it would be, and and, um, because I'm at that point and I'm halfway through the book and just to imagine what, um, what a state social work will be in if myself, Patrice, Pam, and others like us stop talking about racism, it, social work will be in a state. So we need that encouragement. We, we need people to listen to us and come on board, you know, learn how to be an ally. It's, it's hard work. It's hard work, but it's something that's absolutely necessary. Um, and Andy, if people want to contact us, they can contact us via Twitter and LinkedIn. We um, What's your handle? Pete? My handle is Patrice Bentick. Great. Um, thank you, Pam. Thank you, Patrice. Thank you, Pauline. It's been really, really help- helpful talking to you. And it's been a lovely way. This is Friday afternoon. No one knew this. This is the end of the week. It was a really great way to end a week. Thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> and I, I know we'll be speaking to you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. See you, everybody.